This is the Innovation Engine podcast from Three Pillar Global, your home for conversations with industry leaders on all things digital transformation and innovation. Welcome back to the Innovation Engine podcast. I'm Scott Varho, Three Pillars Chief Evangelist, and I'm your co-host for today's episode, alongside our banking and financial services industry lead, Rob Murray. Hey, Rob. Hi, Scott. Uh, Absolute pleasure to be here today. And our guest today is Sam Yen, the Chief Innovation Officer for Commercial Banking at J.P. Morgan Chase. Sam leads a cross-functional team of more than 100 UX designers, developers, and product professionals delivering digital products, platforms, and services that power the innovation economy. Prior to JP Morgan, Sam was the Managing Director for SAP Silicon Valley and SAP's very first Chief Design Officer. He was responsible for driving SAP's design and user experience strategy and execution across the company, including leading SAP's design thinking practice both internally and for customers. Sam also has a PhD in design, mechanical engineering, and aero astro from Stanford University which underscores who the smartest person in the room here today is. Sam, welcome to the Innovation Engine. We're thrilled to have you. Thanks uh, so much, Scott and Rob, for inviting me. Um, I don't know about the smartest, but certainly the most overeducated, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> the most papered. Um, well, I mean, yeah, I, I could, we could spend time just trying to decode what you have studied. Um, but, um, but I want to jump in a little bit. Um, you, the J.P. Morgan Chase Commercial Banking has a tagline, Banking the Innovation Economy. And given that this is the Innovation Engine podcast, we just have to ask you, what what does that entail? What does that mean to you? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm joining you all from from Silicon Valley, from Palo Alto, um, and, and having grown up here, you know, I've seen the the booms and the busts of, of innovation um, here. Um, but but you know, I, I think at the end of it, it's a it's an intersection of entrepreneurship and technology, um, you know, that drives the innovation. Um, uh, and there's opportunities of high growth companies uh, that really kind of change the way that we work and the way that uh, we, we live. Um, and when you think about the innovation economy from a banking opportunity for us, it's it's really the intersection and bring the you know if you bring together that ecosystem of these entrepreneurs, investors, VCs, uh, consumers, customers, big tech, um, and 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 the partners, you know, the legal um, partners and everybody. That whole environment is what we think is the innovation economy or the innovation economy ecosystem. And we mm-hmm. think that um, from a banking perspective, um, we bring certain you know capabilities because we bring the full breadth of the entire firm of you know not just Chase and J.P. Morgan, you know the the entire breadth of the firm. Um, there's opportunities that we could do not just that go way beyond just the core banking services. Uh, we could bring together. Uh, the ability for you to interact with investors and connect with investors, the ability to bring you know together um, even software solutions to help you do your billing, to manage your invoices, um, uh, to, to set up your merchant services. So all together, we think there's a big opportunity. Um, and, and why not start with J.P. Morgan Chase? Because if you start early, uh, we also have the scale and the breadth to be able to grow with you as you grow. Yeah, no. I mean, having been in this business long enough to know that there are um, a, a variety of incentives and friction points in, in the intersection of good ideas and capital um, and, and what people are trying to achieve uh, on both sides of that equation, uh, I imagine there's a lot of exciting opportunities, uh, present and future, um, in this industry. And, and J.P. Morgan is, is an incredible platform. Um, so you're responsible for digital products, platform, innovation, and product strategy. Um, wow, that's that's just a lot to say. Um, that's quite a broad remit. 
Um, and this is for one of the largest financial institutions in the world. Um, so to work at that scale, can you share some of the core guiding principles that that help you govern your teams and, and help them prioritize um, their work and, and, and work towards a, a shared set of goals with you? Yeah, look, at the start of it, uh, and you, you said in, in, in your introduction to, to me, you know, I have a design background as well. So uh, being very customer or client-centered um, is really, really important. It's, it's, it's maybe the, the most fundamental principle. Um, how, how can we, in everything that we do and every touch point that you have with us, both in person and digitally, uh, really strive to make that a delightful experience uh, and make your lives easier? Um, we have this saying, I, can't, I didn't come up with it, I wish I did, one of my colleagues uh, did. Um, but you know, if, if we're a bank and we consider banking products our core offerings, we have to understand that who we're selling these core offerings to, who we're offering these core offerings to, our customers and clients, um, it's really a chore for them. So our core is actually their chore. You know, their core is running a business, whether it's manufacturing products, selling things, you know, dealing with employees and, and things like that. So we need to kind of make sure that what we're offering, um, um, you know, just really helps them with their core, right? And it's not just banking for banking's sake. We need to understand what it is that our clients are actually trying to do and how could we be of service to them. And sometimes that goes above and beyond just offering the core banking products. That's that's so well said. It's, uh, it reminds me of a, there was a chapter in my career when uh, I was working on identity and access management. And I used to tell my team, our hugest UX win would be totally forgettable. Yeah, No one needs to remember the login experience. <laughs> this is not what we're trying to, you know, so our innovation is to try to be as invisible of a, of a speed bump as possible. Um, yeah. And uh, it's, it's, it's interesting to think of your challenge that way as a designer sometimes. Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's a couple other principles. I think uh, just over time, I don't, I don't. It would be it would be nice. Like we we actually don't have like a, a list that we pass around and everybody reads. But um, things you know, common themes um, along those things, right? Think outside in. You know, not you know just within the four walls of the company. Uh, uh, one thing I like to say is, uh, what's new for J.P. Morgan Chase doesn't necessarily mean it's new for the world. Um, so you know, take inspiration from from other areas. Um, I think. Uh, this notion, especially like in Silicon Valley, how do you how do you introduce progress over perfection? Uh, how do you get out of the rut of trying to be perfect and not taking a step because you're you're in you're you're just trying you're doing analysis paralysis and you know moving forward, taking that first step, getting feedback um, or learning from that feedback quickly, iterating. You know that's that's also a common principle. Uh, be very clear in your communications, right? Um, um, one, one of the adv advice that I often give to people that are you know starting their careers is. Um, your technical skills uh, will take you so far, but communications and clarity of communications is so important. Um, it's it's you know there. I, I heard Satya Nadella kind of gives this this thing, which I believe in as well. Uh, he said there's there's two types of communications. There's some people that are very good at making simple things sound very very complicated, uh, and then there's other people that are gifted at taking complicated things and make it sound very simple. You know, always strive for the second one. Um, and and then and then look the the product. Um, is, is, is actually an experience. And the experience has to be end-to-end. -end. So a lot of times we just think about, hey, delivering this feature, but it has to be set in the context of the end-to-end -end experience. Like, how do, how do your clients even know that you've added this new feature? How do they learn more about it? How do they, you know, what do they do if they, they need some help as they're trying to get through this, this capability that you, you just introduced? So, so thinking end-to-end, -end except instead of just um, 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 really kind of just focusing on the one piece, um, and then at the end of the day, make an impact, right? You know, what's the broader impact of the things that you're doing? Um, because that's, that's you know, that's going to be good for 
the team, the product that you're working on. But you know, again, it's it's a bigger picture mentality. How are you making a broader impact, not only for the bank but the customers that you're trying to serve? Yes, yeah, Sam. One of the things I, I really liked, uh, I, I liked a, a lot of what you said, if not all of it. The one specific is, you know, just because it's new to JPMC doesn't necessarily is it's new to others, right? And sometimes in, in banking and, and having a bit of experience there myself, uh, you can get uh, you can blinders on for a bit, right? And not understand what else is going out going on out uh, with other fintechs and those types of things uh, that could really make a change within within an organization like JPMC. Absolutely. And, and and that's why, you know, sometimes location also helps out. Like I'm I'm here again again with all the fintechs that are all around us trying to disrupt us. So you know, it might be good to see what they're working on and, and see if we could beat right. them to the past sometimes. So Sam, as you mentioned, your background is in design and design thinking. Over the years, we've heard a lot about how design can earn a seat at the proverbial C-suite table. And then there are some folks that even challenge whether or not uh, design should be at the table. Uh, you've been able to do this at, at two very large organizations, both uh, SAP and, and JP Morgan Chase. How did you how did you manage that? How did you earn that seat? Yeah, you, you know, you know. Again, if, if you think about it, the the notion that we need to understand what matters to our clients, it's a C level message, right? And and ultimately, if you, if you think about what design is all about, it's understanding your clients, um, having empathy for their needs, discovering new opportunities. Um, and being able to d- deliver delightful experiences and products out of that, right? So it's very much a C-level message. I think the challenge um, sometimes with design schools is they teach the craft uh, without um, helping designers going out into larger organizations communicate the value of design to the the, the C-suite. So and, and and sometimes you know people, if you I'm going to I'm going to make enemies of, of designers right now, uh, but but sometimes um, if if you only stick in your design language and terminology, um, and you're too religious about that, you're missing the bigger opportunity. You know, again, to actually take those principles that you care so much about and actually make a broader impact because you're you're influencing stakeholders and decision makers and invited to have a seat at that table. Um, I'll just give one like really really small example. You know, in Silicon Valley, you hear a lot: "Hey, fail early, fail often," right? Um, uh, that even worked, you know, in the in the big tech companies that I worked in. Uh, doesn't work so well in a financial institute to say fail early, fail <laughs> often. Um, but that notion quite costly. Yeah, it could <laughs> be quite costly, regulatory kind of issues, all of that stuff. But um, you could get the same effect just by changing the language a little bit, right? So instead of saying fail early, fail often, just say, hey, can we test? Let's run a small test. What can we learn from that? Um, and and what can we adjust very very quickly? Right? It's, it's the exact same principle. But just you know, having a little bit more empathy in terms of the context that you're in, speaking to an executive audience, not being religious on you know the things that were in your textbook, and explaining that you still get the, the you know the the point across just in a different way. But I, I do want to make sure I highlight this point that you're making, Sam, because it is really really important, and and a lot of people misjudge design, and and this is these are even designers, right, where they believe that they're judged by how the 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 beauty of what they what they create rather than the impact or the curiosity that it took to make something really intuitive um, and something that is forgettable, let's say, um, uh, versus something that that's, that's really beautiful or, or, um, or polished or fancy. Um, and I think that's a, that's a key misunderstanding of, of the true potential of design because it really is, is that the psychological warfare of, of creating great products, services, and experiences. 
Yeah, I, I think a lot of people think of the the fit and finish, right? What does it look like? How does it feel? And that's an, that's an important part of uh, design. But um, I think from a from a sea level perspective and a strategic perspective, it's more about who are you building, who are you building for, why are you building this, and what are you building in the first place? And that's where the kind of the early design research can really, um, you know lead to very, very strategic business, you know, decisions. Um, and then, you know, designs evolved throughout the entire process, of course. Financial services um, as an industry, uh, well, is an industry that typically is not synonymous with innovation, right? And many banks I've worked with make an effort to innovate. Um, uh, they may even stand up innovation teams. Uh, but when it co- comes time to implement, uh, their projects or ideas, a number of roadblocks uh, tend to appear. Um, have you found that instilling and executing on a culture of innovation in a large financial institution is a challenge? Yeah, it, it's been a challenge, but it's it's not completely unexpected either. I, I, I would say whatever industry you're in, there's always going to be a, a difference in your speed of executing innovations in a smaller you know, startup organization versus a large established organization, right? So that's always yep. going to be there regardless of whether you're in financial services as well. Uh, you know, prior to this, I was at SAP. It was a large German software company that had been around for 30 years. And there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of momentum um, and and governance and rules and processes, um, also mission critical stuff, right, as well. Uh, there's, there's of course, in, in financial services, the, uh, the additional layer of financial regulation and, and that. But maybe there's two points uh, I want to make. The first point is, as with any type of creativity, sometimes having some constraints and boundaries actually focuses you um, and leads to more interesting solutions, right? If you're completely unbounded in terms of your, your solution space, sometimes, you know, it's, you're wandering around and it's, it's, it's hard to, to really focus. So, um, yeah, I mean, every single solution is going to have some boundary conditions and constraints that you're going to have to deal with. And just knowing what those are up front um, can actually save some time in the long run. Because, you know, if you, if you don't take all those things at the beginning, sometimes those, those things spring up, and, you know, when, after you've built the product and you're about to, to launch. Um, that's not good, right? Because you've spent all that money up front. So understanding those conditions up front actually leads to some interesting conversations and some innovative solutions. Uh, the second point is all about risk. Um, and how do you position risk within the organization? Because sometimes in large organizations, and, and what I found in financial services is there's a tendency to kill off some ideas before they even are able to take their first steps. I mean, I, I, and I find that um, if you look at the difference between large organizations and maybe especially kind of with, within the banking context, the risk tolerance is pretty much the same even at the very beginning. You know, I'm just coming up with an idea versus, and typically you'll have the same risk tolerance as this solution scaling to all of our customers, you know, at the same time, right? It's, it's just the same. And what we've been trying to do is we've been trying to say, look, we'll get, the, you know, by the time we get there and, and we're going to take our product and we're going to scale it out, we're going to be at the same risk level. But at the beginning, we may take, the new ideas may, may seem like they're higher risk at the beginning, but that whole process between now and then is de-risking it uh, to get down to that level, right? So I would argue that the whole venture process is exactly that, right? You have a pre-seed round and, you know, there's a huge market risk. There's a huge, a huge team risk. There's a huge ex- execution risk. And with milestones, you get a little bit more incremental funding, but every single time you're de-risking that. So by the point 
you're, you're getting into Series C and you know, you know maybe about to go public. That's when you know you've got the you know you've got your execution risk really down, and that's the kind of model that we're trying to instill here also to 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 take some of those more innovative ideas and, and make sure it has a little bit of a runway for success. Uh, the you know the other way I, I help I, I try to visualize that is you know imagine risk is in a, a line of boxes right, and on one one side of the box it's like a really really tiny box, and then each box gets bigger and bigger and bigger until at the at the end of the line you've got this huge box. The box represents the risk. And yeah, you know, the, the big box is when you're, you're releasing this to all your customers. But let's take it one box at a time and let's not try to you know, take all the risks and controls of the biggest box when you're in the first step. And that's, that's helped to kind of help you know, give you know, uh, risk-appropriate processes for depending on what stage you're in. I, I, one of the things I love about your answer is, is, is that it acknowledges that and I, any idea has to go through, it has the, well, the feature of time. Right, so it needs to mature. It needs to grow, and that it, that that in, that includes the ROI side of it. How much is it going to? What is the investment? So the I side needs some information, the return side needs some information, and then the risk side needs to follow that as well. Um, and and if you have proper, you know, if you have those stage gates, then you could manage all three uh, sides of that triangle, if you will, um, through the process. But it shouldn't be all pushed up to the very first, the very yeah. first time the idea is muted, right? That's right. Um, that'll just that'll just kill them the very best ideas. Um, yeah, and, and Rob, to go back to your question, um, it's hard because it's new. Like these, all these concepts are, are, are somewhat new. Um, so you you have to show. Uh, it takes a couple iterations, right? You have to okay, this is a new concept. Let's start with something small that you're not going to do a lot of damage. Let's go through this process. Okay, that you know, we 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 did we didn't get burned by kind of the risks that we were taking because we limited the risk and and all that stuff. Now we could do something a little bigger. So it, it takes a couple iterations. Yeah, and what seems to be a common thread, um, Sam, and, and uh, you can confirm or deny, is this in having both innovation and design embedded within with the the entire line of business technology, right? And so that it's not many banks, at least a, a couple of FSIs that I had worked with in the past, have made a mistake of, of innovation, separating innovation and putting and working in a vacuum. Right, not working with the rest of the business and understanding because there are constraints. There may be legacy systems or those types of things that may impede your ability to execute on something that's very in- innovative. But uh, with everybody working together, you have a clear line of sight what the, those constraints and those challenges may be. Yes, yeah, so, so I've, I've done similar roles now for for a while, um, and um, and also worked with other companies that that are you know large companies that are trying to figure out, regardless of financial services, right? You know, large company, how do you prevent being disrupted? Um, and yeah, there's just a lot of innovation drop points that you have to be aware of, right? So if you have a siloed group, um, it's, it's, you know, you, you've got the concept, but somebody has to take the concept and, and actually implement it. And if that's, if there's no continuity there, then the, the group that's implementing it, you know, they're not very excited about implementing it. They, they, it's not their baby. They, they weren't involved in it. They said, Hey, look, you guys did this in a vacuum. We have all, you know, you, you defied the laws of gravity, but we have things that we need to do here. Right. Um, and then, um, and so, so then, you know, like if you if you connect that a little bit better, and you've got you know some connectivity to the actual implementation teams, a lot of a lot of times, then you build the product, but then you forget the entire go to market aspects of it, right? So there's another innovation dropout where the product is according to features and functionality and delivered on time under budget, but then you, you left out the entire go to market, right? So, um, so, so, so yeah, it's it, it's it's it's, it's just, that's this is why it's so hard. You you just have to it's a you have to thread the needle between. You know, 
cutting edge, doing it quickly, but kind of involving the organization enough so that they won't reject it, but then not too much where, uh, where you can't get anything done. I was, I was on one of these innovation panels and a, a guy from Cisco, I gotta, now I'm putting myself on the spot, I'm going to get the quote right. He said, one of the challenges of uh, innovation teams in large organizations, you have too much money, too many people, too much love, and too much hate at the same time, right? So you know, that, that's you know, <laughs> the kind of thread that way. Right, right. Yeah, well, we, I mean, I, Rob, Rob and I have our own war stories that we've exchanged of our own experiences uh, uh, experiencing exactly that. And, and, and yeah, it, it is it is challenging to try to figure out that, that, that intersection point between like, how do I free myself of the constraints for a moment to start to think about the art of possible and then re, you know, re-engage those constraints in a, in a constructive fashion that doesn't snuff out an idea. Um, it's really, it's a really interesting uh, challenge for sure. And, and in, our, in our prep call, you talked about how innovation is a function of, of both creativity and execution. And I think this is very apropos to the conversation we we're just having. Um, since you don't get to choose to be good at one and not at the other, um, uh, neither you, you can't innovate with, without one, either one of them. Um, can you expand on that and how that adds an additional layer of complexity to what you do and especially how you then go about scaling it? Yeah. Um, the, the whole point of that is to frame innovation as not, um, black and white, but, 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 but an and, right. So, um, the way I usually present this is if there's a room full of people, uh, I'll ask, uh, you know, most people kind of agree with the overall definition. Innovation is a function of both creativity and execution, right? You got to get big ideas where there's no innovation. But if you don't take those ideas out to market, if you don't execute on those ideas, that's also not execution, right? So there's a the creativity side, there's the execution side. If you, uh, if you ask a room full of executives, um, how many people feel that you're good at execution and raise your hands, like almost everybody raises their hands, right? Because that's what we're measured on. This is what we're, we're all good at. Um, um, and, uh, but on the other hand, if you ask a room full of ex- executives, how many people, how many of you think of yourselves as creative individuals, right? It's kind of sad. Like 75% of the hands will go down, right? They see themselves as good at execution because, you know, maybe their boss is in the room and, and this is what they're measured on, right? How many people are measured on their creativity? Uh, but but you know there's there's usually twenty five percent that kind of brave people that keep their hands up, and then I'll ask the follow up question and I'll say, well, how many uh, how many of you feel that you could take your individual creativity and teach your entire organization how to be creative, right? And almost everybody puts their hands down. Um, but then you've got a problem, right? You all agree that innovation is a function of creativity and execution, and for most organizations, right, this pressure of execution is like really really time bound, right? You got to, every, every, you know, you're getting disrupted by your competition, by startups and everything, right? So how do you balance out that innovation equation? Um, and, uh, and, and this is, I use that just as a, as a framework to also kind of tell the difference between what is execution and creativity. Um, and this gets back to our earlier point about what is the value of design, right? Execution for me is how well do you solve problems, right? Um, I know what the problem is, um, and over time, I have, a, I have an organization, processes, and I'm very, very efficient at solving problems. And that's execution, right? Um, and creativity, it, like if you think of execution as problem solving, um, I like to introduce it as problem finding, right? What's the problem worth solving in the first place? Um, because you need that, right? You know, if, if you're only solving the same problems over and over and over again, then you're just making your existing things more efficient. And you're getting incremental types of innovation. Um, but the breakthroughs usually come when you question, hey, is that thing that made us successful five years ago, 10 years ago, still relevant? There's new context. There's new needs, new technologies, 
right? So for me, creativity is finding the right problem to solve. And this is where design comes in, right? Design, the whole design process, aside from making things look pretty, is all about understanding who the users, uh, users are, what their needs are, um, and understanding whether you know, directions in the solution space will actually kind of fit those needs. So that's how you bring things together. And that's what I talk about with innovation and creativity and execution. Hmm. I, it's so it's fascinating for me to think about you reframing that question to that audience as how many of you consider yourself a creative problem solver? Yeah. Um, and, and I bet a lot of hands would, would stay up, um, yeah. you know, cause we consider that that kind of creativity is just a natural part of being good at execution. Right. right. Um, and yet, you know, I, I would be one of those people to put my hands down. If you, if, if you said, are you creative? You described four phases of innovation readiness, uh, in an interview that you did that, uh, that were super insightful. The four phases were lonely soldier phase, success in silos, uh, push to pull and then scaled. Can you talk a little bit more about these phases and, and like how you see them uh, manifesting? Yeah, so, so so this came out of some some experience. Uh, so so back in, when I in my role at SAP together with 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 a couple colleagues, m- most notably a colleague that works with me right now. Her name is Janaki Kumar. We uh, we 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 worked with other organizations um, uh, that were looking to do an innovation transformation. You know, worked with executives. Um, and and interview them, survey them to see what their journey was like, and and these were the the four phases that that seemed to emerge in terms of innovation readiness um, um, in in large organizations. And typically, it happens like this, right? You know, some some executive, high level executive, will get inspired by listening to a TED talk or going to you know hearing um, IDEO or David Kelly talk about uh, innovation, or, or Sam we'll, yeah, on the innovation engine, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and, and let's see, uh, and, and yeah, so, so let's see what happens. Uh, we need this within our organization, right? So they, they nominate somebody, you know, Scott, you're nominated. You're, you're the person to transform my entire organization, my entire 30,000 person organization, right? That's the notion of a lonely soldier, right? Um, you've got the, you've got the high level executive mandate to do so, um, the executive doesn't know how to do it. Hopefully, you know how to do it, but maybe you, you might not know how to do it either. But you have the mandate now, um, and sheer like personality and will, you're able to um, you're able to kind of get going, right? Um, I've got goosebumps. Yeah. I, I've I've been given that charge <laughs> before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, and, and then you know, and then the, um, if you if if you do if you do a good enough job and, and people are are excited about that. Um, you, you you start to go into the next phase. The next phase is success in silos because because you've had you know your individual successes just because of you know your sure will of, um, you know force of personality. Um, you're asked to do more, and and you're and you maybe you get some resources. You, you get a team, um, but it's still only happening in silos, right? It's still top down. Scott is still leading this thing, um, and it's it, it's still limited. Um, and and it's really until the next phase, which is like the tipping point or the inflection point, where you go from push to pull. And what that means is instead of this being a top-down driven thing, the rest of the line of business leads are starting to notice that you know not necessarily you know it's it's not the uh, ivory tower sort of thing. Um, they don't know my business, but they're starting to see. Wow, I'd like to bring some of what they're doing into my business. So instead of the, you know before this gets pushed down from the top, let me go reach out and actually try to. Pull this into my organization. And I think that's you know a mindset shift where you know again it's it's usually not the top or the bottom, but you know you got to get the mind share of the middle management. Um, and this is like I said the inflection point. And then finally, um, once you do enough of this, 
Um, scale means you've, you've actually started to change how your business runs, whether it's people that you hire, people with different skill sets, how you incentivize folks and, and processes and governments and technologies, right? So those are kind of the four phases that we saw kind of emerge um, from, from the research that we did. That is fantastic. That really is uh, um, it is a really helpful thing, I think, for for companies who are interested in upping their innovation capacity to think about <clears throat> and to be okay also traversing those different phases because uh, it is a progression and that is that is natural. Um, and then thinking, you know, I was actually just helping a, a, a client think through their processes of how they do business case um, management um, and, and, and thinking about how they could introduce new facets to that business case process that might lead to a different set of, of outcomes for them in the medium term. Um, but uh, it's, it's, it's good to be able to take stock and, and be okay with where you are and where you're not. And, and Yeah. And unfortunately, it's not always a linear progression, right? Sometimes you, you take a step back or two steps back. But uh, absolutely, absolutely. Well, we're, we're never in a vacuum, right? So there's there's always a lot of a lot of things going in our context. All right. So I well, thank you for indulging me on that because I think those four phases are, are really really helpful for um, companies who are are wrestling with uh, innovation and innovation progression. Sure. Um, so thank you for sharing that. Um, and uh, and we've actually been speaking with Janaki, so we're looking forward to talking to her some more. Um, speed round. So we like to close each episode with a with a speed round. Um, uh, are you ready? I'm ready. Fortunately, it's it's not quite as threatening as it sounds. You're one of esteemed Stanford professor Larry Lifer's former PhD students. What was the toughest class you had under him? You know, ironically, I only took one class with him, uh, which is uh, it was a fantastic class. It was at the time time was called ME two ten, and it's now called ME three ten, but it was a it was a industry sponsored year long design challenge where you you worked with people from multidisciplinary teams, sometimes even remote students from different schools, with an industry sponsored project. You got a budget and you had to deliver a mechanical you know product design solution, and and that was great. Learned so much. Again. Um, Maybe more about just team dynamics, learning how to work with stakeholders, and so on and so forth. I'm going to give a part B answer to this because he was my thesis advisor, um, and I think just working through a PhD thesis uh, was uh, was probably the the hardest thing uh, because it you know I was talking about finding the right problem to solve earlier. You know that's maybe one of the few examples in school where you're not just learning how to solve problems, but you really have to first find the problem to solve first. Um, and I thought that was a that was a great educational process as well. Yeah, no, I, I I went through, I have not been through a PhD, but I wrote a thesis and, and there was definitely that, what question is worth worth actually trying to answer anyways? Um, it's quite, it can be quite a hunt. Um, so I am curious though, because it, it, it is fascinating to me to think about working on a, an industry project like that with, there's no, there's no org structure in that team, right? So uh, there, you've got a bunch of creatives trying to trying to uh, obviously assert themselves. Um, so yeah, that had to be a very interesting. Were, were you proud of what you what your team was able to produce? Yeah, we were. Um, uh, I'm going to take a, a little bit of a tangent here. I mean, I, what one of the res- so the the way the class was set up is you know there was also a bunch of PhD students that were just looking at the design process and looking at things like team dynamics and diversity in teams. And that's the thing I was going to say is um, what they actually found is you know the more diversity. In teams, the better the you know, final score was over 20 years of these projects. Um, you know, coming people coming from you know not necessarily, well, yeah, all kinds of diversity, but um, you know, technical backgrounds, you know, cultural backgrounds, um, work experience backgrounds. Um, 
But what that also also led to was, you know, the it, that didn't mean that the teams that got along the best also performed the best, right? Because because of the you know <laughs> you had so many different points of view, a lot of times those those teams had a lot of friction along the way, but they were able to kind of work through the friction and br- make, bring the best to the solution. Uh, so that was some interesting research outcomes that came out of. Yeah, I always I always try to differentiate for team with teams on recognizing constructive tension versus destructive tension. Um, they they definitely are different, um, but tension it should be part of the part of the sport. Um, that's that's just the nature of the beast. Rob, yes. So Sam, you are the owner of not two, not three, four patents. I'm sure they're like your kids, <laughs> right? Uh, and it's tough to have a favorite, but which one are you most proud of? I guess there's one that took the entire PhD to kind of come up with, right? So, so that one is probably my my favorite. Just in a nutshell, uh, what you know, again, in the context of creative um, collaboration, uh, the the thesis was that um, if you were able to capture multi modes of communication, right, not just what people say during a meeting, but also what people draw out on a whiteboard, and you were able to capture that there's a link between what people draw and sometimes the most insightful things at a meeting. Um, so instead of, you know, if you weren't president at the meeting and you had to go back and review, you, you're not going to review two hours of brainstorming, but if you actually used the the text uh, and the drawings as an index into what people said, that that would be a great way to capture the most salient and important parts of the conversation. Right. So that's what the thesis is about. Wow. That's fascinating. Yeah, I actually, I had an opportunity to, to do one of these innovation labs where they had artists who was just listening to the conversation and draw on the whiteboard, these amazing uh, creations. But I, I was, it was stunning to then look at that as a reflection of the conversation. And and uh, it actually inspired a whole new set of ideas, even for those of us who were in the conversation. That's right. Um, so that's, that's fascinating. Um, so along the same lines, um, you said that uh, when we when we spoke before that you're, you're your boss has many analogies to discuss um, how you do what you do. Um, uh, can you share a few of these and, and uh, uh, the ones that stick with you? Yeah, I mean, um, uh, our, our the CEO of the commercial bank, Doug Petno, has a lot of these these things, and it's it's great. Like I was, well, it's one of the reasons I took the job. Um, he's so design friendly from that perspective. You know, he'll say things like, "Hey, we got to go long on design," and you know, what does that mean? It's like, well, we got to take the seat of the client. Like, okay, that's an interesting way to say it. Um, and then, uh, you know, the, the other favorite is, uh, know what you're building before you start chopping wood. I love that one because again, you know, to, to me that captures exactly what we were talking about before and, you know, finding the right problem to solve before executing your know, creativity before execution. So those are, those are a couple of the things <laughs> that I would those answer. Awesome. Fantastic. Well, you know, Sam, th- I, thank you. Um, it's great to have you on. I, I, I can only imagine, um, the types of challenges you have overcome to, to get that seat at the table, um, and uh, it's, a, it's really a thrill and an honor to get to, get to talk to you about this. And uh, I'm sure our listeners will benefit from, uh, from your experiences. So thank you. Thanks, Scott. Thank Rob, pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. This has been an episode of The Innovation Engine, a podcast from Three Pillar Global. Three Pillar is a digital product development and innovation partner that helps companies compete and win in the digital economy. To learn more about Three Pillar Global and how we can help you, visit our website at threepillarglobal.com. Thanks for listening and see you next time.